0: Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. Infrastructure, we all know the word, but do we all understand what it means and how important it is to everyday life? Where once it may have meant the bridge and the road, today it's a factor in every part of our lives, from digital access through to environmental protection. It is one of the most important aspects of government and December the 20th last year saw the release of the latest infrastructure document, the Wales Infrastructure Investment Strategy. Joining us tonight to explore all things infrastructure and the latest strategy, are David Club, who is now the Chair of the National Infrastructure Commission for Wales. Hello, David. Hi there. We've got Fran Rolf, who is the Senior Green Infrastructure Officer at Natural Resources Wales, focusing on urban regeneration and connectivity.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Thank you very much for coming on. And we've got Catherine Wenger, who is the Arab Infrastructure Leader for Wales and South West England. Catherine leads a team working across rail, highways, water, energy, Geotechnics, Land Management and Civil Engineering, as well as being a fellow of the Institute of Civil Engineering. Hello, Catherine. Hello there. Sorry, it's a nice, snappy, short intro. I was going to say, yeah.
2: Uh... <laughs> Starting us off with questions this week, we've got Kerry. Evening, everyone. Uh, David, one of the things we are trying to achieve with the Here I've Pod is to widen the subject matter and interest people have in key areas of Civic Wales. As chair of the Infrastructure Commission, can you just talk us through? what we mean by infrastructure here and and perhaps the role you have as the commissioner if you can set the scene for tonight's part of it work
3: so infrastructure is uh, the thing that we take for granted pretty much in enabling us all to do our everyday activities and i was thinking about this today and i thought okay how many times do we interact with infrastructure during any given day and it starts of course when you wake up and you've got a roof over your head and that's infrastructure housing it starts when you check your phone, um, which is digital infrastructure. It starts when you put the kettle on, electricity and the utilities. Pretty much every single moment of the day, you're interacting with some form of infrastructure. So it's everything which enables yourself as an individual, your household um, and the community that you live in to operate. So my role as the chair of the National Infrastructure Commission for Wales is to try and present a bit of a long term strategic view on how infrastructure should be carried out adopted or practiced in wales
2: fran Catherine, you know infrastructure as david said is incredibly important and i I would suggest it doesn't get the attention uh, it deserves really i think the infrastructure plan on the 20th of december didn't really get a huge view in perhaps overshadowed by the budget but do you want to add anything to david's opening about infrastructure and what we need to value around it I guess
1: looking at the strategy, it's quite exciting thinking about the cultural infrastructure, the social infrastructure, getting away from what people think of as traditional infrastructure. I said the word infrastructure about a million times there. I think that's crucial to tackle some of the challenges that are coming for us. You know, when we talk about climate change, and I don't necessarily want to get doom and gloom really early on, but you know, the predictions are pretty bleak, you know, when we think about what's coming for us and what we really need to be in the position we need to be in to actually be resilient to that, whether it's ecologically or socially or, you know, culturally and, and physically. You know I think it's quite exciting that we've 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 got the strategy and then I think you know the delivery is the is the next really big interesting bit.
2: Catherine, I think delivery is something you've clearly been involved with for uh, much of your career. Can you can you add to that?
4: Yeah, so I was thinking about the definition a bit more, and as well as all that's been said already, you've then you've got the behaviors and enablers. So when we build something, it might be fabulous, but unless we've engaged and people then themselves engage with it. And, have, you know, and interact with it and love it and use it, it's redundant. So that's, there's a huge bit about behaviors and enablers. Another aspect then of infrastructure that I think um, we could add in is nature, is there's, there's the natural infrastructure. So we're not just doing this now. It used to be very much that we construct infrastructure for ourselves, the humans on the planet, Well now there's a huge drive to construct infrastructure that helps protect natural planet as well. And the, the value of biodiversity and all of that now is in becoming more and more recognised. So the infrastructure isn't just for us,
3: it's for the whole of the planet. Yeah, I and mean of course that natural infrastructure is also for us, <laughs> not just for biodiversity. But right. I was really pleased actually in the the new uh, ways of infrastructure investment strategy to see that biodiversity and green and blue infrastructure really has quite a central part to it. So, I, you know, kudos to Welsh Government for picking up on that.
1: Yeah, and I guess I'd also add on to um, Catherine's point is looked after. We have all these amazing schemes, but actually, if you measured a scheme on its delivery and you actually measured it five years down the line, 20 years down the line, is it actually functioning because we've looked after it? So I think there's something that we really have to take on that message around, you know, it's the capital versus revenue, but it is, if we don't care for things, then it can't work for
2: us. David wrote a really interesting article in the Welsh uh, news site Nation. So he said, infrastructure investment programmes must embody the value of social justice and move to eliminate the inequality in Wales. I think that's very clear, and it was very clear in the Welsh Government strategy as well. Can you talk us through a little bit more about how that happens in reality?
4: So thinking about a couple of projects we've been involved in recently, um, which might help bring this to life. So one was about cycleways and accessibility to active transport, and looking at the barriers um, by gender on what might be the unexpected barriers to active transport. And another was an interesting review around um, journeys, and and this, this came up not as a project, but just simply as a case study, talking with apprentices about how they travel to work and have to take three different buses through three different um, networks and end up buying three tickets. So that whole piece around the need for integrated ticketing. So interestingly, we're not physically building anything. You know, The idea of infrastructure used to be that you physically build something. Actually, what needs to be built there is a ticketing system, nothing physical. So infrastructure is becoming processes and procedures and the way we operate, not just what we build.
0: So whilst we're on the social justice uh, side of this argument, the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act is so important, at least on paper, to everything the Welsh Government does. To what extent do you see that becoming a reality in practice in the way that the Welsh Government acts as well when looking at infrastructure, David?
3: I think they've done a pretty good job here, in fairness, and I wouldn't have said that about many Welsh Government documents perhaps over the years. Like any large institution, I think that... They have struggled to implement the future generations act in ways that have actual meaning and value over the years since 2015 but there's been a, a distinct improvement a steady improvement in how they've tried to integrate it and i would say that from perhaps not a very auspicious start they are now really demonstrating strong insights and understanding about what it means to integrate policies within a whole range of different suites of activities and I think that that is considerably better actually than most other public bodies within Wales and again that's probably not something I would have said a few years back. So this is so tightly integrated it talks about uh, depending on the four well-being outcomes of economic, social, cultural and environmental and you can see that all of the strategies broadly speaking have strong links to all of those. As you'll have seen from the blog piece that I wrote I was really, really heartened and excited, actually, by the fact that they talk so much about social justice. Because in a country and in a world of it generally increasing inequality, we can't just allow the poorest and most vulnerable in society to suffer the biggest consequences of pollution, of climate change, and all the rest of it. So when I'm thinking about long-term future of infrastructure. That social justice angle is really important because if it comes to issues of, for example, flooding, coastal flooding or river flooding, the people who are most able to move, who have assets, who have the wherewithal, they will probably move. And it's the people who are not able to move who will be left to pick up the pieces and to live in those communities. So our infrastructure should really represent the interests, I think, of the people who who suffer most and who are most at risk. And I think you can see within this infrastructure strategy significant elements of that um, philosophy coming in. The other interesting thing I think about it, which is also slightly aligned, was um, Rebecca Evans's intro. So she's the minister with responsibility. And her opening statement is, instead of thinking what infrastructure should we invest in, the question is what should investment in our infrastructure enable? So infrastructure is an enabling concept, like Catherine said, it's not necessarily about building things. Maintenance is incredibly important, as Franz already said as well. So what can we enable? What are we trying to enable? And how does that allow us to fulfil our obligations, not just to the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act, but also bearing in mind the overarching climate emergency and the nature emergency? So I think as a policy document, this for me is, is pretty strong stuff. And I remember looking at Planning Policy Wales uh, when that came out about a year and a bit ago. And that was also another iteration along this road. So I think that Welsh Government is really getting to grips with how the Future Generations Act should be implemented. And that's why I was so excited to see this document.
0: Catherine, obviously you work uh, on both sides of the border. Do you see any material difference as a consequence of the Act and how governments approach the way they design and implement infrastructure?
4: it's a really good point because there is nothing like it in england and i have described it to our english clients and they're quite whoa, really that really exists that that's really a thing and i think it's been very helpful because within wales you do have something to refer back to and it's common with all the clients so even though private clients are not obliged they're still aware of it and some of them are taking it on voluntarily And then they're you know they're able to advertise that they're doing that but actually to have that common guiding principle is very helpful whilst in england when you're talking with clients there about what does sustainability mean for them it goes off in all sorts of weird and wonderful directions and doesn't and can't then have one central point to bring it back to and we've tried using the un uh, sdg goals you know sustainable development goals they are so far removed from some of the clients a reality that they there's too and there's too many of them and they can't get to grips with it. So I think in Wales having something that's much more condensed and accessible and actually has the means as well as the ambitions is really helpful. So now I've I've shown it to my English clients, they've sort of been quite impressed. And it's not often that we get to do that and take something from here and and you know export it.
0: Brand do you see the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act and the goals there they're in being increasingly important in the way we design welsh life
1: absolutely i mean a really a really good example is the five ways of working so if you if you think about the involvement thread of that it doesn't say engage and it says doesn't say engage probably for a really particular reason because actually to truly involve someone you have to you know truly work with them And, and and i think when we're talking about social justice and inequalities the people who are the experts in social justice and inequality are the people who are living in those communities in those situations and if we don't put in a concerted amount of effort to really engage with them to you know do outreach with them and learn and learn from them then we're we're not really going to get it right either so i think working in the public sector the five ways of working are really useful because sometimes when people are a bit blindsided by you know what they're trying to deliver and what they're trying to do and taking them back to that involved No, we've got to stop you've got to draw breath and you need to involve people um, because otherwise it, it won't work. Done, I think Ian to the and did that in the, in the um, uh, Cardiff um, suds. I've just completely forgotten his name. Why have I forgotten his name? Ian to Greener, Greener Grangetown. Thank you. Greener Grangetown. Yeah. So he. Um, I think he said you engage as much as you can until people, people just don't want you to talk to them anymore. But it, but it is a really fair point. I think I, I bang on about involvement all the time because if we don't, if we don't truly involve the communities who are who are actually the experts in this stuff, then we will miss the point and we'll miss the opportunity to get it right. It's
4: interesting you mentioned the Green Town community involvement because that was a huge amount of time and yeah. all sorts of methods of trying to get out to a very diverse community. So you know that that was a big big part of it um yeah so you're absolutely right you can't underestimate how much time that will take
1: yeah yeah and i mean it and it and it it frightens some decision makers and planners and people trying to do projects and when you're looking at things and you've got time scales particularly if you've got annual budgets and you need to get the money out the door by march and it needs to be delivered i mean i have heard people say in in all sorts of different roles oh but there isn't time to do that and it's like we, we have to make time you know if we do things in the spirit of the act then actually that's what we really need to do so, yeah, I'm a, big, I'm a big fan of that. And I think going back to the um, social justice and inequality, there's a, a really nice example, I think, when we think about sort of the impact of infrastructure or poor infrastructure on people. So there's some, a nice bit of research that came out. Mothers being exposed to a combination of stress and air pollution in the second trimester of pregnancy they're more, much more likely to have a baby who goes on to develop a chronic respiratory problem like asthma. And then if you combine that with the stress of living in a low, low income whilst pregnant, um, so obviously that ups to stress. And also often people who live in places with poor air quality and pollution are people who are living in you know, low income neighbourhoods. So all that together creates a person who's not even been born and they're already, you know, starting off with health inequalities. You know, we've, we've got to get this right. You know, it's really important. If what's in the strategy is, you know, is we really want to do, or make it happen, then that's really important. So I, so I am really excited about social justice inequalities being, being kind of really important in it.
3: Can I, can I just jump in as well? Because there's another a thumbs up for Welsh Government. I don't want this to be a Welsh Government love fest, but nonetheless credit where it's due. They've, um, last, at the end of last March, they implemented the socioeconomic duty on public bodies in Wales. And this specifically says that a public bodies should be aiming for equality of outcome in all that they deliver. So this is not about equality of opportunity, but it's actually looking at the outcomes. So to Fran's point there about people who have high levels of mortality or morbidity, who live in lower income areas, now there is a specific obligation on all public sector bodies to try and ensure that they redress that balance. So across each different piece of the policy suite, um, and hopefully leading to implementation, we're going to start seeing changes made that will benefit the, the poorest in society.
2: I think, I think those are some really, really good points. You also mentioned something else which I wanted to draw upon, which was the five ways of working. And Ed Evans, uh, Director of Civil Engineering Contractors Association for Wales, which I'm sure many of you know, He did a blog late last year, and in it he called for greater collaboration across the infrastructure sector in Wales, with a clear focus on value and for interworking relationships between Welsh Government, UK Government, and local government, which really puts Welsh infrastructure at the centre of what we do and any kind of future pandemic, post-pandemic recovery. I'd suggest we're notoriously bad at that kind of joined-up working you know would you agree with that on how do you think we can address that and help ed achieve that kind of vision fran have you got any thoughts on that to do with culture
1: so there's a there's a real challenge with the culture and and i usually quote when we're talking about strategy there's the it Peter Drucker uh, quote, which says, Culture eats strategy for breakfast. Um, so, we can have all of these amazing things like ways of working, and we can have all of these amazing strategies, and they can have all these amazing things that we're all going to do. And when you get down to the face of people making decisions every day who've been doing their job for a number of years, and they're in an organization that culturally doesn't support them to work in a collaborative manner or to work in a multidisciplinary team in an innovative way, then it's going to really struggle and flounder. And I think that is a huge issue it's not just the public sector but the public sector is a you know a big decision making sort of body force for it could be a really amazing force for good doing lots of good things if we manage to to get it all right but but there is a real issue with you know getting people to work collaboratively because that kind of needs people to be brave and be bold and take steps outside of their normal process and that's that's quite a hard place to be. I think there's also some systemic things that
3: probably could do with addressing sometimes particularly between the private and public sector because very often the public sector is procuring services and the private sector is delivering and what we have now i think is an expectation from the public sector that the private sector needs to be delivering a lot more so certainly that would be my own perspective we're not just building a road anymore there's a lot of things that will go along with any piece of infrastructure um, and i think To be fair to the private sector, that many of the organizations who are involved with infrastructure want to do the right thing. They want to skill up their employees. They want to develop their own skills and abilities in-house. But there's potentially a problem if procurement doesn't then recognize that this investment has taken place and that the procurement part of things isn't asking for the things that the policy says that it needs. So in the worst case scenario, you might get a policy saying it wants really ambitious things, private sector gearing up for that, the procurement asking for something which is quite a low spec and then the companies that haven't been gearing up for this you know all singing all dancing future generations approach win because it's, it's on price so I think there's there should be um, really strong expectations on the private sector to be able to deliver brilliant projects scoring across a whole range of outcomes but equally there has got to be an expectation that the public sector recognizes there's a big responsibility on designing procurement pro- processes and systems really well so that the the right organizations are winning work and it's really adding value so I think that there's probably a piece of work to be done between the the private and the public sector on that as well.
4: If I can add on that then the the value piece what different people view as value and valuable becomes really interesting when you're talking about uh, how do you value the work the, the what people can bring to it how do you compare different companies and what they're offering and value is something we're
0: not very good at defining at all. Without coming across all Oscar Wilde, you've you've talked fantastically about the value of what you're talking about, but I think it's time to talk a little about the price of everything you're talking about. Finance is a hugely important consideration in these massive infrastructure projects. How difficult is it to deliver projects of this scale considering the sort of financial limitations in which the Welsh Government is operating, Catherine?
4: Oh, well, good question that. How do we, yeah. and financial certainty is a massive question. Um, and um, with the work I've been doing through the ACE, whenever we get asked about what's the biggest thing that clients would like, it's financial certainty because they want to know what they're planning for. And, it, and it's tough, it is tough because things change. And projects do vary as they go through. And I think the, their clarity and risk and being open to talk about risk very, very early on. I don't think we have the discussions openly enough about the risks and the unknowns because everybody starts a project incredibly optimistic. They've probably had to go through a competitive procurement to get there. So they've taken the best possible view of the risks And then the risks might well materialise further down. So I think we have to be a lot more honest in our discussion around risk and risk mitigation and who holds which risk.
0: David, do you
3: want to add anything in there? One of the things that I hope the Infrastructure Commission can bring is something that starts charting out long term issues and strategies that help reduce risk and um, reduce errors in the long term. Certainly, if you look globally, there's probably about 15 examples of infrastructure commissions around the world. And that seems to be the defining reason for each one of them. Because typically, Welsh uh, Welsh Government, for example, will have a three-year financial window. UK Government will have a bit longer. But nonetheless, it's still in relatively short-term burst of capital. And that's a really poor lens for looking at infrastructure, which we hope will last 50 or 100 years. So this is the idea I think behind the Infrastructure Commission and I'm optimistic to to say that um, we should be helping to generate some of that long-term vision around a couple of um, select areas and let's see how we do over the next couple of years. But yeah it's a long-term piece and we've just got to accept that some things um, won't be perfect through the shorter term.
4: If I could add something to that. So outcome-based projects are really interesting because if you can define clearly the outcome you want from a project rather than the output. So rather than being really prescriptive about exactly what you want to build, but instead the clients can describe the outcome they would like to be different as a result, we then can help them in that creative process of coming up with lots and lots of ideas about how you might get to that outcome, which might be building something it might not be, it might be a blend of the two, So, you know, you look at um, projects we've done for water companies, for Welsh Water in particular, and when we understand what the outcome is, they want to improve bathing waters, for example, then rather than traditionally we would have built massive storage, instead we're going way upstream and doing catchment management work with communities way, way upstream, because that still realises the same outcome. And the cost is hugely different, much more beneficial, And you've also got community benefits and lovely social benefit, then you're really great plus plus pluses. And that's because we understood the outcome and, and they had described the outcome in such a way that we could be really creative around it rather than giving us the shopping list of outputs. And that was a real aha moment when we started talking in terms of outcomes, not outputs. And that unlocked a whole new way of thinking which in itself brought financial benefits and the plus pluses which are the exciting bits as well. So I'd love to see more of that, more outcome-based, less
3: output-based. Yeah, I love the idea of the outcomes because that enables the creativity. It's tougher if, from the point of view of, of bidding for the work Oh yeah. because you've got, to, you've got to come up with the creative ways of actually achieving the outcomes. But nonetheless, you're far more likely to get something which is interesting and draws on a whole different range of perspectives if you define it by outcomes rather than outputs. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'd love to see more of that as well.
1: I think that was what was kind of exciting. Sorry, I was going to say, I thought that was exciting in the strategy. It felt like it was moving from outputs to outcome focused. And that's once we can get there, then we can start thinking about the functionality of it rather than being limited by someone's imagination, essentially.
0: (laughs) We do, however, though, see in discussions Welsh Government have about large infrastructure projects, you've seen the discussion we've been having a lot in Wales recently relating to Barnet consequentials and HS2. You know, Mm -hmm. the idea that if you don't get the money back from the UK government where it should be given, you, you are still not gonna have the money in the first place to start these large infrastructure projects. So cost has to come into it. Initial upfront cost has to, has to come into it. How, how do we address that? Obviously you wanna to move to a more outcome rather than output model, but that's gonna be very difficult for government to do relating to you know, political accountability, et cetera. So that how do you how do you operate in the interim before we all accept that outcome is the best way? You 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 there has to be an in between period, doesn't there, Fran?
1: Uh, yeah uh, yeah there, well there is an in between period, yeah. um, and I think it's that blending of public private, and I think we probably have to be a bit more flexible with how what you know where we get things from, how we close viability gaps on some schemes, and I think we're probably getting a bit more intelligent about how we do that. You know that's probably sort of where we are i think we're in that interim period now really where we're trying to come up with different ways to fund schemes you know we know we want to do this and we want to deliver it and so we're looking at different pots of money and we're trying to see if that's flexible in terms of could you do that okay if you could do that then who else could join us to do that um you know who would be the lead partner maybe that wouldn't be the partner who wanted to do it originally you know so it's all those kind of things are in the mix so people are trying to find a way to get it done
3: i was going to say that there's um to compare the, the approaches of the Westminster government and the Welsh government, one of those governments is very clearly starting to target behaviour change, and that is very difficult. Franz already talked about how difficult that is, and I quite agree. But nonetheless, in principle, it's relatively cheap. Difficult, but cheap, and long-term. But nonetheless, you don't have to pay for new infrastructure to change the way people think. You just have to keep pushing on a policy level and then and make programmes which deliver on that. So, for example, if you're trying to reduce air pollution, one way you can do that is to try and um, encourage people to use private transport less, use public transport more, use active travel more. So, through having a policy which deliberately prioritises the transport hierarchy, so active travel first, effectively you're investing, your infrastructure investment is going to be pointed in the direction of less polluting vehicles, less polluting infrastructure and you're starting to promote people getting out of their car, you're starting to reduce air pollution, and all that for a cost which is considerably less than if you were building new roads or bypasses or whatever. So I'm not saying that this is a a flawless approach. Clearly, it's going to be quite tricky. And it's still, I think, very early to tell what the difference is between infrastructure in Wales and and infrastructure in the rest of the UK. But nonetheless, I think there's an interesting direction of travel And it may be that in 10 years, we turn around and say, okay, yeah, that actually worked. And even though there wasn't the the money to do big capital projects, there was another approach that worked because we had the strategic um, future generations approach, because there was a political decision not to build more bypasses or roads or whatever, and because that money then went towards lower-cost projects, but projects which made a, a, a greater difference locally. So some of this conversation is about what we... We hope what we expect to achieve, even in the absence of as much funding as we would like, but taking that long-term strategic view might well help us to get those outcomes.
1: Taking it back to that social justice and inequalities um, conversation thread we were kind of on earlier, if we're going to do any of that, you're going to have to do lots of retrofitting. Retrofitting is really expensive, but actually your benefits are some of the biggest benefits that you're going to get. So I I I think it's a challenge, but I think you've got to work with lots of organizations, lots of different parties to make it work, really.
2: I I was hoping uh, one of you would mention what I'm going to talk about now in in one of the answers there on the financial side. So I don't want to labour the infrastructure and finance aspect, but, you know, Welsh Government is, and it's in the strategy and the supporting financial documents, the mutual investment model. Do you think, so I'm not a fan, I I consider it PFI in all but name, really. But do you think that with the current devolution settlement we've got and the financial envelope we have from... Westminster, but that kind of innovative model, and it is innovative, but um, is that something we're going to have to utilise? And, you know, I I would suggest it it is a very, very costly process for what we're getting. So the example being the the last stretch of the Heads of the Valleys, which is a billion pound plus over 30 years for a half a billion pound capital investment. Is that something we're going to have to just suck up, David, and just take those kind of approaches until... Devolution works out a better fiscal settlement. Like
3: you, I'm not the greatest fan of what I would have thought of back in the day as public-private partnership. You know, when Tony Blair and Gordon Brown were putting a lot of investment into worthy projects, but nonetheless saddling the taxpayer with a a longer-term bill. And I know from the experience of people I know work in the healthcare uh, healthcare sector that for those institutions which are still managed by the private sector under these kind of locked in contracts, the bills for things like changing a light bulb or whatever could be extremely high compared to just somebody doing it. And because of all of these ownership models, in some cases, you're not actually allowed to do anything to the infrastructure. So I think there's clearly examples where that hasn't worked. But within that um, infrastructure document, it says that the mutual investment model is pretty much a last resort for funding. So you could easily make an argument. And I think, again, there are probably cases where this has been done in the past with the private finance initiative, where, yes, you might be investing in something at a relatively high cost, but nonetheless, if the social um, or the, uh, the economic need at that time was was very great, then you're probably still better off investing, even if the money, the financial cost is quite high. So I can see the justification for including it. It's clearly got... A, a caveat, which is that it's the, the option of last resort, but I think they would have been foolish not to put it in there, because there's three years to run on this financial settlement. Who knows what comes up in the next couple of years that would require would a big amount of capital funding? So I think they've given themselves room to deliver on things if they need to, using that as a kind of last resort. Because
4: there is the time aspect of the climate emergency it's now, it's now we need to be doing things in the next 10 years to make a real difference. So I agree with David and Fran, you know, this is this is not preferable, you know, it, it's costly to do, but actually when you start looking at the other impacts of hesitating, the long, long-term costs in other ways tick up as well. So, you know, it, it was terrifying to hear some of the speakers at COP really bring you know it's now it's now it's here and we must do things quickly and and actually at some point we might have to make some compromises
3: to just get going yeah the cost of action versus cost of inaction yeah sorry fran
1: yeah, well, that's exactly what I was going to say. I was going to say, if you know, people talk about things being expensive now and I often get stuck in conversations about traditional slot drains versus rain gardens. And, um, you know, actually <laughs> we can split hairs over what costs what now, but actually if you don't get it right now, what is it going to cost you to put right? You know, and that's the thing. Like if we could actually recognize the cost and say, well, you are going to have to find this money from somewhere else because this street's going to have a real problem with surface water flooding and things like that later on. So... But you know, you need a you know, a good a good empowered decision-making staff to be able to, you know, really take the plunge on those things. Plunge is probably the wrong word in my mind. You need to be brave. Some of
4: those decisions yeah. you've gotta to have to be really brave and they will be unpopular, but we've got to
1: do them. Yeah, the time yeah. the time for being brave and bold is now.
3: There's also a really fundamental importance in being able to to sell, to put it that way, to sell these concepts and to sell the ways of doing things differently. And I think in principle, there's a large section of the population which is ready for that as well. We've seen through COVID people have banded together and agreed and taken on huge restrictions to personal freedoms in order to try and um, support a kind of social movement in a way to protect the vulnerable. I think that there is still a huge amount of that social cohesion and the right people making the right arguments could probably carry this, I should think.
2: I think you've mentioned that the need to decarbonize our infrastructure is going to be increasingly important and in how we tackle that and I imagine that will feature strongly in the delivery of the plan as that develops David but it also and it came up in a lot of our pods last year on climate change and um, it's probably one of the trickier infrastructure questions we're going to get but for me personally after COP26 the issue around nuclear really did start to emerge again and I think that it has emerged across much of the world when they look at how to solve or address climate change. You know, is this something now which we're going to have to start talking about in Wales again? And, and, you know, can Wales uh, engage in that kind of nuclear debate?
3: Well, that's an interesting one for me, because as somebody who's worked in the renewable energy sector for nearly 20 years, my argument would have always been that we already have the technology and a low-cost technology through renewables in order to be able to make, make that difference. So I my personal preference would be to see um, continued and greater investment in energy storage, in hydrogen, in all of the enabling infrastructure that would, would allow large-scale and increasingly large-scale renewables to deliver as much of our electricity and heat as, as necessary and, of course, for, for transport. Um, I was interested to see the letter from the National Infrastructure Commission for the UK to the, the Chancellor um, saying that they didn't think there was any need for large scale nuclear uh, reactors in the UK anymore after Hinckley. And you know, I have sort of personal views about um, nuclear, which are related to the foundational economy type aspects. So, for example, if you were to compare large scale distributed generation, so individual solar panels multiplied to tens or hundreds of thousands of, of times across Wales. That requires, there's a fairly low bar to entry into that as a as a market, as an employment market. So you need roofing skill, you need some um, fairly low-level electrical uh, requirements. So it's a skilled trade, but nonetheless, you don't need to have gone to university for, for three years and then a postgraduate degree and then trained up in a nuclear institution for X years before you can get involved. So there's something about those very highly specialized and localized skill sets that grow up around large nuclear power stations for, for a very great cost, which I don't think really now suits the direction that we're thinking about with the foundation economy, which is to try and get those jobs spread out as widely as possible. So there's a sort socio economic aspect that I'm not super keen on. And for for the background to nuclear, you know, they've had, it's a sector that's had huge subsidies since the 50s, and it's still more expensive than renewables. So I'm not personally in favour of it, but luckily that's not a a decision that I have to make because that's not on my radar for the next three years uh, um, within the Infrastructure Commission. And I know that there's a very active and interested community on both sides of that argument who will be carrying it on uh, way
1: outside the commission as well. I was going to say, to take it back to the strategy, I think there was a there's a the section on um, economic well-being and business support to deliver a vision of an inclusive and green economy. And I guess if we're thinking about you know leading on from what David was saying around jobs and around um, well going back to social justice and how people can engage with things like that, then I think really it sounds like renewables would fit the bill more for that. As a as a as a regulator, there's a whole process that people have to go through and businesses have to go through to kind of to do all of that stuff. And when we're thinking about the circular economy, obviously, if you think of the waste streams and things like that, I think it's I think it's really complicated and complex. Um, and I think there are pros and cons on both sides, um, which is a bit of a politician's answer, really, isn't it? So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess it's complicated. It's probably my actual opinion on it. <laughs>
4: It was interesting the things that the strategy was silent on. For example, I don't think hydrogen was mentioned. I don't think nuclear was specifically mentioned. So I was, I was, as well as being interested in what it included, I was also interested in what it omitted. And I, I think there probably is some more work to be done on that whole energy mix piece and how it relates specifically to Wales. Um, because I've seen big energy studies done for the whole of the UK but not a particular Wales focused and then where of which of those aspects does the Welsh government, uh, are they able to influence and which is um, devolved um, for them. So, you know, hydrogen is a big one. We haven't yet spoken about tidal, you know, the unique position of Wales with its big coastline, massive tidal range. That's something I think it was it was mentioned in there, but not not as much as I might have expected for um, the unique position that Wales is in. So I think there needs to. I, I would love to see that energy mix piece, both from the demand and the supply, um, really investigated further. I know there is some work being done on that, but I'd, I think there's more that we could do to understand that and understand the difficult decisions that may need to be made around that.
0: We'll we'll focus for a second on transport, if we can. In Wales, so often the discussion ends up boiling down to roads versus rail or M4 versus metro, if you prefer. I mean, it's quite clear from listening to you what your preferred solutions would be, but it seems as though the governments in Wales and Westminster take a slightly different uh, approach on this. Which approach do you think will end up winning out when the politics becomes really involved David
3: <laughs> I was wondering who you're gonna to come to first with that one in a sense the what well, the future generations Act gives is something for politicians policymakers and practitioners to stand behind to, to take the criticism and um, it's' It's the act that governs all public bodies in Wales. And as Catherine said earlier, there's a lot of private sector organisations and third sector organisations who have also signed up to it because they recognise the language that it uses. And I think if you, um, as a policymaker, just say, well, we're we're governed by the act, we're bound by the act, the obvious logical outcome of following that act means that we have no option but to support active travel at the expense potentially of new roads. Well. You know that is clear. It's not really a debate to be had about that, in my opinion. I think there is a debate about new new versus better maintained. And I again, I think within that strategy, there's definitely now we're leaning more towards spending more on on revenue on maintenance, which I think is a good thing because we will almost certainly need to not just maintain, but Change our existing infrastructure to take account of um, of climate change and and other social changes, but yeah, on the transport, I, I think there's a huge amount to be said for active travel. One of the things that I found was quite interesting that was pointed out to me by somebody I know who's uh, who's an engineer. He said, "Well, there's nothing in that about personal mobility, so electric scooters and stuff like that. I mean, apparently it's still illegal to to ride an electric scooter on the road, but if anybody who lives in Cardiff stands around for more than about eight seconds." <laughs> you will see a whole fleet of them go by you. So, you know, the South Wales Conservatory could spend their whole time just arresting people on scooters and still wouldn't clear the roads. So there's clearly something there which has taken hold demographically, socioeconomically. it's providing a really big need. The technology is developing at a really fast pace. And yet there's a complete absence of uh, some sort of policy measure or an even acknowledgement that this is gonna be a a policy issue. So I think there's, there's a lot of catching up that needs to be done politically, perhaps, and also on the policy side with things like that. But for me, that's hugely encouraging. In principle, I think it can be a very low-impact way to to travel and to support people um, to get around, but it has to be done right. And at the moment, I have just a fear that there's going to be incidents where people are killed or people have collisions in an unregulated way, and then that whole thing blows up. So I'd, I'd, I'd like to see a lot more activity taking place on the policy side of that.
0: And don't think I've got away from the political question for, for Catherine or, or yeah. Fran. Catherine, what, what's your view on how the different governments' approaches will uh, will impact the way we design infrastructure in, in in both of these countries?
4: Yeah, so I was going to go back to the roads piece there. Actually, yeah, I think um, it was really interesting when the Welsh government you know stopped all the road schemes, and I and I understand the need to stop and think, is quite a, a black and white, quite binary reaction because not all roads are bad. And when we think about the, the way that roads can act as a catalyst for you know, social regeneration, for access to jobs, you know there, there are points of view which can bring in the benefits. So again, it gets back to this really trying to weigh it up, which is really hard to do. So sometimes we are going to need to build new things. Sometimes we're going to need to maintain. And I would like to see us talking more then about the catalysts for what could um, different, all sorts of types of infrastructure help with rather than a very binary, all roads are bad because um, there must be points of view where we, we need the roads for the electric scooters, for the bicycles, you know, so, so roads in themselves aren't the bad thing. What is it that the road might be enabling that you wish to avoid? So how do you then work with that? So I think there's something much more nuanced than just saying roads are bad, but the um, adaptability piece. So how do we build something that is adaptable for future needs um, is is big there. So you were looking ahead to how the different governments treat road schemes. It's very interesting um, how many of the English schemes have recently been stopped due to challenges about based upon climate change and you know have they looked at all the impacts there so there is a requirement interestingly there to for national highways in England that they're having to be uh, a lot harder on themselves in terms of assessing the benefits of projects and that's probably a good place to be now that's what we're talking about we want projects that have the multiple benefits that can therefore justify their existence uh so it's happening both sides of the border, but in different ways. Uh, In one, the government has voluntarily stopped and in the other schemes are being stopped by uh, protest groups and by challenges. Um, But the outcome should be the same for both of them and that we think a lot harder about what the schemes are, why we're doing it and why we're spending the money in that way.
3: There's a, a review panel which is actually going to take the decision, I think, or make recommendations to the Minister on, on which roads should go ahead and which should be paused or or stopped completely. Yeah. So but it's, it's not quite... Yeah, but so there's a moratorium moment. for now. Yeah, you're right. But um, I don't think that that means all those roads won't be completed. It's a, it's a break for now. Correct.
0: Yeah. There's an interesting uh, question here, really, which is relating to the Hendy review on union in, union connectivity. Basically, Peter Hendy said that although devolution had been good for transport, it had left gaps in interunion connectivity. I think I don't know if this is too simple a question, or I'm massively overlooking something. But if the governments at either end of the M, using the M4 analogy is terrible in this situation, but the governments in Wales and Westminster are thinking about connecting their countries up differently. How do you approach interunion connectivity if they're not both singing from the same hymn sheet?
1: (laughs) Well, it's something for the politicians to hash out really, isn't it? Because I think it's really difficult. Um, And I think for those communities, particularly on the borders, I think for them, you know, there's there's some real crucial challenges where I think you know if the jigsaw pieces don't mix match together then that actually makes life really hard and then in you know the infrastructure is not working for them on either side and I I don't think that's okay and then we we think about economic growth and everything else or even just you know from a point of view of you know I'm I'm based in Swansea encouraging investment over you know to use the m4 encouraging investment over the bridge is hard enough and getting it past Cardiff and getting it you know getting it all the way over here is is hard so if we if we make that harder by these things not not matching up, then there, then there is a, a a challenge there to overcome. Um, how how that'll be done, I don't know. Um, in all honesty, um, I don't think it's I don't think it's an easy one to crack, and I think it's a, a very political one. So let the politicians do that one.
0: Catherine, did you have anything, or David, to add on that?
3: No, I mean <clears throat> clearly politics is playing a big um, a big part of this. With uh, things things seem to work a bit more smoothly um, when there was also a Labour administration in Westminster from the point of view of having those those discussions, although there was still clear red water back then so to speak but um there's that different philosophical and political viewpoint uh, which is obvious every day you see statements which are coming out which are combative i think between the two different governments and that's probably uh, not the most helpful approach when it comes to um to infrastructure but dare i say it i suspect that below just below that top level level of political engagement probably people are getting on and 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 doing the work that they need to do to try and support that local infrastructure. So I know that there's really good cross border work going on on rail. I would be extremely surprised if the same wasn't happening with road and other infrastructure. So there's probably a lot of sound and heat happening at the political level. And I think below that, probably the collaboration is still pretty good.
2: We've gone through a lot, but there's um, a lot of things I would have liked to have talked about in a bit more detail. I think, uh, Catherine, you mentioned Tidal Lagoon, there's the Metro is around remote working and the need for greater digital investment. But we're coming to the end of our time. So what I really want to... I'm a bit of an in infrastructure geek. I, I love everything about it so that we could carry on talking for ages. But one of the roundup questions I want is, you know, if we had a wish list piece of infrastructure that we could prioritise for the, in this decade, what would each of you choose? And it can be something we really do need or something far out there like a fusion reactor i think there's a site in wales EMART. i read a story today about something called cryogenic batteries so one by one i'm just going to ask you for your, your wish list piece fran can i start with you
1: yeah i would require the integration of green infrastructure for new um, zero emission buildings and renovation projects which it kind of covers a lot because I'm saying green infrastructure, which is a bit of a cheat, really. Um, no. If you want me to pick a typology, I probably could.
2: <laughs> go, go on, Frank. Go on. We...
1: Uh, I guess I'd say green roofs. You know, if we actually think of, you look at, uh, if you look at an urban environment from above, um, and you look at all the public space, then actually, if you look at all the roof space, that massively increases the opportunity to create space for nature and people and stepping stones and um, ecological improvement and stuff, and there's multiple benefits.
2: It's nice that i'm very much with you Catherine. have you got a, a piece you'd I'm, like to focus on i've got two i'll have two go on two. two
4: quite different ones so i do have tidal i do i, I get very excited about the potential of tidal energy um, it's predictable it's right on our doorstep um we have a lovely out of sync tides all the way around wales we could do something really clever there if we were bold and brave and then one really close to everybody is decarbonisation of homes you know, if we want to make a difference to our energy usage, let's enact, do all the good things around decarbonising our existing housing stock.
2: David, final word on the wish list? Yeah,
3: yeah I'll, I'll go with something very similar to Catherine on tidal. So I think it was a real shame that the Swansea Bay Tidal Lagoon didn't come off. And I think actually there's something there about um, how does the the Green Book methodology properly recognise all the benefits of a project. So for example, maybe a Swansea Bay tidal Lagoon could have been demonstrated to save hundreds of millions of pounds with the flooding infrastructure costs to Swansea, our sea level rises. So that for me was a massive missed opportunity. And I would love to see that come back in some different form, perhaps in the future. And the other thing, just a little personal th- uh, thing that I'm involved with the Cardiff National Park City. And I know France had an involvement in Swansea, which is more about social infrastructure, But it's going to be a movement to try and tie together all the different organisations that are doing brilliant things within Cardiff. And I think, you know, when and if people see things happening locally and are empowered to make changes in their own street and in their own garden and to make those connections. I think that's part of what we're talking about, which is low cost, brilliant green infrastructure, which makes a difference in, in people's everyday lives.
1: Can, can, I, can I add something? <laughs> I want my second one. <laughs> so my second one um, is not, not a thing um, as such, but it's, it's better conversations. So like the Swansea Tidal Lagoon is a really good example. You know, for whatever reason, it, it, it didn't come off, but actually some of the conversations around on impact here versus betterment here, we're not having really good conversations with our communities about the choices and the decisions that we need to make to ensure that we are resilient to climate change and that we are adapting to it. So I think it's really, really important that we're having better conversations with absolutely everybody and we're talking about why we need to do things. And so it drives me a bit bonkers. If we don't break our love affair with cars, you know, we're gonna have we're gonna have real problems. And that's not just about carbon emissions, that's also about social inclusivity. And you know, it's about how do we make places dementia friendly? How do you know all of that stuff? How do we make places for families? You know, we engineer families out of our out of our public space. So there's all that stuff. I can run about that for a while, so I'm going to shut up. But yeah, better conversations, please.
0: <laughs> well, I just want to say thank you so much for having a wonderful conversation with us this evening. Uh, if people want to hear more from each of you on Twitter, where can they go to find you? We'll start with Fran.
1: At F Rolfi.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. Catherine?
4: I can't remember because I'm not very active on Twitter, so you've given <laughs> me a good prompt there. I am on LinkedIn, though.
0: Wonderful. David?
3: Uh, I'm on uh, Mastodon at toot.wales at David O. Club. And if you want me to come on and talk to you about open source social media, we can have a whole different
0: uh, <laughs> podcast about that. Well, thank you again for coming on and talking to us this evening. If you have enjoyed what you've heard this evening, please do not forget to find us on Twitter at HereIfPod and on Facebook at HereIfPod. Thank you for listening to HereIf. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.